We talk about all these things about, about um, compassion, about sponsoring a child, about going on the medical mission trip, even talking about affordable Christmas. And, and all of us instinctively say, like, those are good things, and I would love to be involved. But we always have that sort of however, or maybe not always, but a lot of times there are barriers, there are things that come up. And so today I want to address one specific barrier that may be um, what's holding you back from stepping forward and getting involved. And so to do that, I want to turn to the book of 1 John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, if you would turn with us, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read uh, verses 7 through 21. That's a pretty long passage. We're really just going to focus in on a couple of verses at the end, but I really think we need to get the whole context of this. So we're going to read um, this whole passage and then focus in on the end of it. If you don't have a Bible, um, there should be a hardback one under the seat in front of you. And so uh, you can use that one, and it's on page 1023 in those hardback Bibles. So please go there with us. And follow along as I read. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord. So uh, several years ago, a psychologist by the name of Dr. Gary Chapman released a book, called The Five Love Languages. It's a pretty well-known book. Some of you may have even read it, or if, even if you haven't read it, you may be familiar with the concept behind it. Ostensibly, what the book said was that everybody communicates love in different ways. Specifically, he identified five languages or ways that people, different people, communicate love to each other. Um, for the point I'm making, the specific five love languages aren't that important, but I know 
that you're sitting there going, you, you need to list them. Because if you just move on, I'm going to be sitting here wondering, what are those? And, and on a practical level, I know if I don't, you're just going to be Googling it. So here they are. The five love languages that Dr. Chapman identified were words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, giving gifts, and quality time. And what he said was this. All of us connect with one of those or two of those more than we do with others. And when we love somebody, that's how we demonstrate it to them. And when somebody does those things to us, that's what communicates love to us. And that the problem sometimes in a, in a relationship, maybe in a marriage or in a parent-child relationship or in any kind of love relationship, when there's conflict, a lot of times it's because even though we, we love each other, we're not communicating it clearly because, in effect, we're speaking different languages. And so, for example, if I... Um, communicate and understand love more through words, compliments, um, you know, words of affirmation, as he would say it. And I'm trying to communicate with, I don't know, one of my kids who their language is more gifts. And so they're giving me stuff, you know, and they're picking up rocks that they found. And this is, isn't this a cool rock, Dad? And I'm like, I just want you to tell me how awesome I am, but they're giving me a rock. And so I'm not getting it. And then I'm telling them how wonderful they are, and they just want some more stuff. And, and so we're just talking past each other, and we're not communicating love. And so that's kind of where he was going with that. And whether you agree or disagree with kind of the central premise there, here's what I think we would all agree with, what he's getting at. Love requires some expression. That the idea of love, the concept of love, the emotion or the feeling of love is pretty much meaningless until it is expressed in some way. Whatever way that may be and whatever that looks like, there has to be some outward manifestation of this sort of inward emotion we're feeling. You can feel love towards someone else. But until you express it toward them, what use is it, really? What impact does it have? And then furthermore, and maybe this is sort of where he was going with that idea, and I think it's powerful, and this is just true. Love's greatest expression comes when it intersects with the greatest point of need in the life of the person that you're expressing it toward. In other words, the most clearly and powerfully you can express love is when you express it in a way that meets someone where they are most hurting and most in need of love. And this is not just true in human relationships. This is powerfully illustrated by God and the love that he has for us. And here's what John is saying here. Uh, The Apostle John who wrote uh, this, this letter that we read from this morning. God showed his love to us. He expressed his love to us. And we can say God loves us, but the only way we can say God loves us is because he's made clear to us his love for us. And we, and this is what John's saying, and I would encourage you to go back through. Like I said, we don't have time to go verse by verse through this passage this morning. But go back through and follow along and read it more in depth. And here's what he's saying. We wouldn't even know what love is if it weren't for God first expressing his love to us. 
that the entire idea of compassion or concern or care or love is totally and completely tied up with what God has done for us. That there is in this world no love apart from God's love, no true love. That the very idea of it, as, even as an abstract concept, only exists because God initiated it to begin with. And not only did he express his love to us, but he did it at the point of our greatest need. Because here's what the situation was. We, as human beings, rejected God. And we reject God regularly on a daily basis. We push away from him. We push away from his love. We push away from his justice. We push away from his perfection. And we choose on our own to go in our own direction, to say, I'm going to go this way. I know what's best for me. And God, even though you say you love me, I know better, and I'm going to follow my own path. And yet, in that, God loves us. Because as we push away, and because he's a just God, and because we choose to go in our own direction, because we sin, and we've broken our relationship with him, we've made ourselves deserving of his punishment, his wrath, his justice. And because God's perfectly just, it would be unloving of him to not punish sin. But we've placed ourselves in a position to be deserving of his sin, and yet, in his love, because of his care for us, and still maintaining his perfect justice and his perfect righteousness, God has made a way for us to be rescued from that punishment. This is what John's talking about specifically in verse 10. He says, "...in this is love." Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means to take the wrath of God on himself. That God provided for us a way to be saved from his judgment. And the way he provided was to sacrifice himself. To put himself in the line of fire. To take on himself the punishment that we deserve. Now that is love. And that is love in a powerful, powerful language. And regardless of how you think that you most like to understand how people care about you and how you express love towards others, everyone... Everyone can understand the power of a sacrifice. And there's no greater way to express love than to sacrifice yourself for someone else. And that's what God did. And that's how God embodied, or as John uses the word here, manifested his love to us. Through Jesus Christ, taking our sin on himself, out of his love, not because of anything we did, not because we earned it, not because we ever could earn it, but totally and completely out of his love at the point of our greatest need 
to step in and take our punishment. And when we respond to his love, then we are able to love. Our love is simply a response to God's love for us. And whether that's our love towards him or our love towards each other, but any kind of love that we communicate to anyone is only possible, only possible, and this is, again, John is making this abundantly clear, true love is only possible in response to the love that we have received from God. Now, why is that true? Because if we do not understand the full unconditional love that we've received from God, then what we do in interaction with other people is not love. It's something else. It's an attempt to get from them what we are failing to understand that we've already received from God. Here's what I mean by that. God has given us, through Jesus Christ, everything we need for life, for joy, for flourishing. He's given us peace. He's given us security. He gives us comfort. He gives us joy. But if we don't understand that, and if we don't lean into his love for us, then what we do is we go seeking that from other people. And so what looks like on the outside love, and we're giving, and again, maybe going back to to the way Dr. Chapman described it, and we're giving them words of affirmation, or we're giving them physical affection, or we're doing service towards other people, or whatever the case may be, there's at least within it a hint, or maybe full-on spread out, no secret, of a selfish motive of wanting to receive back from others what we're giving to them. And we get really, really frustrated when we demonstrate what we consider love towards others and they don't reciprocate. And that's because it's not actually love that we're giving them. It's our attempt to earn from them what we feel we desperately need. But God's already given it to us, freely, unearned. And that's his grace. And through Jesus Christ, he's provided all that we could ever want or desire or need, truly deeply need. But oftentimes we we ignore it, we forget it, we walk away from it, and we turn and go looking for it elsewhere. When we lean into God's love for us, it frees us from desperately seeking it in other places. God's love frees us to follow him. It frees us to serve him. It frees us to be generous. It frees us to give sacrificially without expecting anything in return. It frees us to grow deeper in our understanding of his love and his grace. But maybe paradoxically, that freedom to grow isn't always easy. Sometimes we think of the idea of freedom as meaning that something is simple. But following God, following him towards a deeper experience of life and joy and peace is not always easy. 
And most often, or very often, what it stirs up in our heart is fear. And so I want to focus in on this verse toward the end of the passage here, where John says this in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because what's he talking about? What's the relationship between fear and love? And as, as I follow God and as I try to understand or in some way grasp a hold of the depth of his love for me, how is it that fear is often getting in the way of what God is doing in my life? I think sometimes we don't realize how powerful of a motivator fear is for us. How powerful of a force fear is in our lives. And how very different behaviors, things that look very different on the outside, can actually be motivated by the same thing, by fear. Because fear can play out in, in very different ways. Um, as an English teacher, one of, my, one of my favorite topics to talk about with my students is persuasion. I love talking about persuasive writing, persuasive speaking, um, because it's so widespread. It's such, for, for high school students, it's so easy to understand and talk about persuasion because we're just surrounded by it all the time. People are always trying to persuade us to do things, to buy things, to believe things, um, and, and it's just nonstop. And when we talk about persuasion and we talk about how much we're motivated by or persuaded by emotion, and what we almost always come to is that probably the most powerful persuasive emotion that there is is fear. Like so often, if you really want to get somebody to do something, fear is probably the most powerful way to persuade them. Okay? Um, I, I think this is pretty obvious right now. I don't know if you've noticed or heard that there's an election coming up this week. Did anybody, has anybody heard anything about that? Um, apparently some people are running for offices and some of the people running for office don't like each other or something. I'm not fully sure about this. But have you noticed, if you, if you actually can watch the commercials without changing the channel, have you noticed how often politicians try to persuade through fear? Right? If you don't vote for me, this is the end of the world as we know it. Right? If my opponent is elected, your life is ruined, and our state will be destroyed, and a black hole will open up under the United States of America. Everything is over, and that's fear, and it works. Okay? And as much as we can complain about politicians or negative ads or whatever, they only do it because it works, and it works because fear motivates us. It drives us. As a parent, almost everything, 90% of of the products that are marketed to parents are based around fear. If you don't buy this, your child will die tomorrow. If you don't feed your child this, they will have horrible diseases for the rest of their life, and they're never going to college. And if you don't have this safety device, then the whole, you know, the, the, your car's going to explode in a ball of flames and because you didn't buckle them in this way. And it's just, it's fear. And it can be paralyzing because fear drives so much of what we do. So much of what we do. And the same is true in our relationship with God, that we can be motivated by fear and we can find ourselves operating out of fear rather than trust in his love. And when I say in our relationship with God, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not talking about like the rest of our life is one way and then we've got this spiritual life. All of life hinges on how we view God and how we understand and grasp his love for us. 
And fear drives us farther and farther away from the joy that he has in store for us. Let me point out two specific ways that look like opposites on the outside. See people operating out of fear, and you see this, these two ways, and it looks like complete opposites, but they're both driven by the same motivating force. And it's the force of fear. First of all, and John highlights it in verse 18, it's the fear of punishment. Verse 17, he says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And then in verse 18, he says, for fear has to do with punishment. And so here's what it is. It's this understanding that we can have that because God is righteous, because he's just, because he's holy, and because we are sinful, the idea that I better live in a certain way or else I'm toast. When God looks at me and he sees all my sin and he sees all the ways I've screwed up, he's going to punish me. And if I'm not living the right way, then when it comes time, and whatever your conception of God's judgment is, when it comes time for him to judge, he's going to look at me and he's going to look at everything I've done wrong and I'm done for. And totally ignoring the idea, the truth, That God's love through Jesus Christ takes that punishment for us. That Jesus already took that punishment for us when he was crucified. That was God's punishment. And if we respond, if we trust in that sacrifice, there is no more punishment for us. It's already been settled. But it's really, really easy for us to say, okay, I get it that that part is covered, and yet I probably still have to do something to earn that. Because it just doesn't make sense. I just can't conceive in my mind of the idea that God would totally make that sacrifice for me, independent of any merit on my own part. So there's got to be something I have to do to maintain it. And whether it's avoiding sin or doing positive good works or whatever it is, I have to somehow earn this love. And because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't, on the outside it looks like obedience. I'm trying to follow everything God says. I'm trying to do what a good Christian should do. But it's a loveless obedience. Because it's not motivated by God's love for us and our love for God. It's motivated by a terror that at any moment that love, that forgiveness, that peace could be gone. That if I screw up enough or bad enough that the whole thing is over. That it all goes up in smoke because I did the one thing or I didn't do the one thing I was supposed to do or I did the one thing I was or whatever the case may be. If you've ever been in a, in a human relationship like that, where you're constantly in fear of the other person turning away. You know how, I, I don't think unfree is a word, is, is unfree, it's a word now, how unfree that feels, how unloving that is. That's not love. Okay? When, when you are constantly looking over your shoulder thinking, if I don't do exactly what this person wants, they will stop loving me. As much as you want to describe that, oh, I'm totally in love with her. And I, she totally loves me. As long as I look a certain way, 
As long as I weigh a certain amount, as long as I dress a certain way, as long as I bring her the right gifts, or as long as I say the right words, or as long as I hang out with the right people, or as long as I don't do this, this, or this, then she loves me, and it's like, that's not love. And you don't feel love, and you don't feel peace, and you don't feel comfort or security. You constantly feel fear. And we act the same way with God. Oh, God loves me as long as I, right? And so whatever that looks like for you, and maybe it's like as long as I'm reading my Bible every morning, I know God loves me. As long as I'm praying regularly, then I know God loves me. As long as I'm not doing this sin or this sin, if I can just defeat that, then I know God loves me. And maybe if I sponsor one more kid, or maybe if I go on this trip, or maybe if I volunteer or bring in X number of presents for affordable Christmas, or whatever the case may be, then, then my love with God will be secure. But here's the problem. It never gets there. Because no matter how much you do, you know, you know how often you fail. And no matter how hard you try, you know how often you screw up. And so you live in a constant state of shame and guilt. And you're trying to perform. And on your best days, when you're feeling really high about yourself, in the back of your mind, there's still that fear. What if tomorrow it all falls apart? And so you just keep trying harder and you just keep pushing more and you're trying and trying and trying to be good, 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 good. But it's driven totally by fear and there's no joy and there's no freedom. The other way fear can play out looks exactly opposite to that. But it's driven by the same root. And that's the fear and I apologize for the wording on this because I really struggle. I, the fear of lack. It's the fear of not enough, of not having enough. And I, I couldn't think of, I, I shouldn't have told you I'm an English teacher because I, can't, I couldn't get the words quite right on this one. So forgive me. You feel, I'm sure one of you has a much better word for this. But here's what I'm saying. It's the fear that you're missing out on something or you're going to miss out on something or that, that there's something there that if you do follow and obey what God's calling you to do, that you're going to have to give up something better. And that you're not going to get what's truly life-giving. Because oftentimes, in order to grow, we have to walk through pain and sacrifice, and we know what we're giving up, and we don't know what's on the other side. And so the fear that we'll end up giving up something that's greater than what what we believe God may have for us on the other side, and it keeps us back. And we end up disobeying, and we don't follow. And we don't follow because we're afraid of what that would cost us. Maybe I could have said the fear of the cost. I'm sorry. Um, Um. And so here's what we do. Because we're afraid of losing, we hold on tighter. 
And we wouldn't call it greed because nobody, I've never met anybody who said they were greedy. Okay, greed is not like a self-identifiable sin. Um, and yet we've all met people who are greedy, and probably we are, and it's a lot easier to notice in somebody else, but we hold on so tightly to our own plans, our own desires, our own finances, our own time, our own relationships, and we refuse to obey what God's calling us to do because we don't want to lose what we believe we already have. But again, the tighter we squeeze, the more we crush what we're holding on to. And there's no joy in any of those things, things that are oftentimes good things God's given to us, but we don't enjoy them because we're so afraid of what will happen if we lose them. And so we develop plans and, and we seek to have more and we look for ways to gain more and we have an emergency fund to back up our emergency fund to make sure we don't lose those things that we are convinced will bring us life and happiness. But because we spend all our time scrambling and scrambling to hold on and hold on, what it eventually leads us to is just greater insecurity and deeper anxiety because what if we lose them? And just like, and here's where we say, it it seems like total opposites, but just like the person who's obeying without love is doing it because they're so afraid of what they're going to lose, the person who's disobeying out of a fear of loss is doing it for the exact same reason, because they're afraid of what they're going to lose. And so they're both the same root, and it's the same shame, it's the same insecurity, it's the same anxiety, it's the same guilt, all working out of this fear. And so what do you do about that? Here's what I want you to understand, and here's what I want you to notice. Again, verse 18. When John writes, there is no fear in love, do you notice he does not say, stop being afraid? Okay. He's making a statement. He's not giving a command. The cure to our fear is not to be more courageous. It's to understand God's love for us. The opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is trust. Courage is me. I'm afraid, so I'm going to find within myself the bravery to do more, to be more. I'm going to conquer my fear. Trust is, I am terrified, but I believe there's someone bigger than my fear, and I'm going to lean on him and let him take care of these things that I'm afraid of. The opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is trust. When we lean into the truth of who God is and how he loves us, then what John says is that his perfect love, his perfect love, perfect love, because we we have no perfect love. We are so far from perfect. The only place perfect love can come from is from God. And perfect love does what? Perfect love casts out fear. 
It's the perfect love of God that gets rid of our fear. It's not us trying harder. It's not us doing better. It's not us obeying more fully. It's leaning into God's love for us that casts out our fear. Let me give you two truths that we need to lean into that will cast out or have the power to cast out our fear. Number one, God loves me unconditionally. God's love for us is not based on our performance for him. God's love for us is based on Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. I don't need to have shame. I don't need to have guilt about the many ways that I mess up, the many ways that I sin, the many ways I turn from God's love. Because the punishment for all of my sin has already been taken. And it was taken by Christ. And it's unconditionally offered to me. And number two, and it's so connected to that, through Christ, God has already provided for my deepest needs. And so the more I'm, I'm trying to grasp a hold of and, and, and scramble to hold on to the things that I think are going to give me security and comfort, God's already given me those things. Through Christ's sacrifice, those things are already available. I don't need to find them for myself. I don't need to manipulate my circumstances to make sure I'm safe and secure and taken care of and happy. I just need to trust the one who's already provided security, safety, happiness. And so the message today, listen, the message today is not, so you need to serve an affordable Christmas, or you need to give and sponsor a child, or you need to go on this mission trip so that you can have God's love. God's love is already there. The offer today is to say that out of God's love for you, you are now free to follow what he calls you to do. Not because you're afraid of what will happen if you don't, but because you trust the one who is calling you to that. That when God, who loves you so much, he didn't even hold back his own son, when he calls you to do something that you can trust, that it must be, it must be the path to true joy, to deeper security, to a fuller experience of that love. Not that God will love you any more or any less based on what you do, but that your experience of it could be deeper and richer, and that someone else may be able to experience it in a new and deeper and more profound way because you choose to follow. This is what John's saying in verse number 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We have the opportunity to demonstrate Christ's love to others. I think part of the reason that this is so hard to grasp a hold of. The idea of unconditional love is because I don't know if any of us have ever experienced that kind of unconditional love from another human relationship. I don't know if it's possible. Because again, we're all broken people. 
We all have within us, in every act of love that we show towards someone else, there's some mixture of selfishness, as much as we try and try and try, or can try, to be unselfish. And so it's really hard for me to conceive of what unconditional love would look like when I'm not capable of it myself and have never fully received it from another human being myself. But again, that's what John is pointing us to here. Jesus is the full embodiment of what unconditional love looks like. There is no benefit to Jesus Christ to come to earth and sacrifice his life, to live a perfect life, and to die for our sins. What does he gain from that? Nothing. And yet he did because of his love. Sometimes, sometimes we catch glimpses of what that may look like. Sometimes in our interactions, sometimes people do things that do seem, and, and maybe in some ways are selfless, and in that we catch a glimpse even the smallest idea of what God's love for us is like. And this is what's so cool about these opportunities that we have coming up, is that it's an opportunity for us to demonstrate just a glimpse, just a glimpse of what God's perfect love to us looks like. We have been given totally unconditional love from the creator of the universe. We do not need to live in fear of what will happen if we mess up, if we disobey. But we also don't have to fear what we will lose if we follow him. And we have an opportunity to demonstrate that love to others. Let's pray. I have some reflection questions on the screen. You can take some time to pray about those, and then in a moment we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your love. Thank you again for the sacrifice of your Son, for God, the <laughs> we, we don't deserve in any way the love that you've shown to us. And yet you chose to give your son so that we could know you. Thank you so much for that. God, please fill our hearts with that love. Please free us from our constant attempts to earn your love, to earn our own happiness and our own joy, and to cling so tightly onto the things that we think will give us fullness of life. Free us to follow you. Free us to step into obedience to what you call us to do. God, I pray that you'll call us very clearly in the ways you want us to follow and that we would trust you, not because of our own courage or our own strength, but because of our belief in your strength. Help us to follow you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.